0: Hello and welcome to CQ Speaks. Today I'm joined by poet and scholar Emilio Taviejo Pelias to discuss Langston Hughes's visit to Chapel Hill and his publications in the bewilderingly abundant Contempo, a review of books and personalities. Because of the scope of the history of this visit and its many and lasting reverberations, Emilio and I have decided to call this part one of our conversation on Hughes. So, Emilio, Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me here. (laughs) Excited to get into it. Yeah, me
0: too. But do you want to tell listeners about uh, how you came to or why you're initially struck by Hughes' visit?
1: Yeah, totally. I think the question is a question of why Langston Hughes. And I think Langston Hughes, for me, because of many reasons, a center of gravity, he has been... And also a figure that, in a lot of ways, is overdetermined. I think we think of Langston Hughes within certain parameters, uh, certain contexts, certain frames that our educational system, at least in the United States, likes to perpetuate. And so, for me, I've been interested, since I was in high school, in kind of thinking about this figure of Langston Hughes, the only black poet that I had to read Um That was part of the curriculum in high school. And the more I started looking into Hughes, the more uh, polyphonic, the more diffuse, diverse, uh, and just really wild um, I found him to be. So I picked up a copy a few years ago of the Langston Hughes Reader, being really enamored by the cover of a really wonderful um, compilation of his writings, and originally, it was completely unconnected with Chapel Hill. I was interested in a short essay called My America, because mm-hmm. it's really, I think, it speaks to a lot of what's at stake in thinking about Langston Hughes, and he writes My America. This is my land, America, naturally. I love it. It is home, and I am vitally concerned about its moors, its democracy, and its well-being. I try now to look at it with clear, unprejudiced eyes. My ancestry goes back at least four generations on American soil and, through Indian blood, many centuries more. My background and training is purely American, the schools of Kansas, Ohio, and the East. I am old stock as opposed to the recent immigrant blood. So I think um, this question of American poetry, what it is to claim American soil, what it is to claim... Uh, connection to indigenous america and what it is for hughes to make these this really wild and powerful claim of belonging one that's traced back 400 years positing himself as an immigrant who's really settled down who has deep roots whose land this is Mm -hmm. is this land so this is all to say that in this um collection, there's a short piece called Color at Chapel Hill and finding myself through some kind of coincidence at Chapel Hill. I was just drawn to it because of the place, particularly the Chapel Hill was enfolded alongside all of these other places. It's a superimposition of maps, maps on maps. So a few pages afterwards, we're in Madrid. A few pages before that, we were in Cuba. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the history of his visit here, uh, his reason for being here and the backlash definitely shook up my understanding of Hughes as well. And uh, that vital concern he mentions in the excerpt he read is a big part of what's at stake in our discussion today. But let me fill in a little background for our listeners. Um, in 1931, Hughes embarked on a tour of historically black colleges to give readings, but also to raise awareness of these Scottsboro boys, um, a case in which nine black teenagers were accused of raping two white women on a train near Scottsboro, Alabama, and were convicted and were going to be put to death. While on tour, uh, UNC professor Guy Johnson and playwright Paul Green, who we discussed on the last episode, invited Hughes to the University of North Carolina to read his poetry. He stayed, as he says in his autobiography, through most of November. And From here, things take a pretty immediate and lasting turn uh, when he's asked to publish two pieces in Contempo magazine. Do you want to talk at all about the history of Contempo, and then we'll dive into what exactly uh, he published
1: yeah, totally. Um, so Contempo, small magazine, vital organ of experimental, unbound, modernist prosody and prose. Um, really curious publication, actually. I found it through Hughes, through this a small piece, Colored uh, Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. But doing a little bit more research into it, I found out that um, Contempo begins in 1931 through... Milton Avon Abernathy and Tony Batita, two students, and I'll leave that with a question mark. Mm-hmm. They were registered for classes. I think um, there's a recollection of Abernathy being enrolled in an aesthetics course uh, taught by Paul Green. Whether he completed the course, there's not a lot of documentation. He certainly was enrolled, but there's kind of a controversy whether Abernathy was a student or whether he and Butita were students. Mm-hmm. So the publication was always kind of, whether it was related directly to the university or not, that's kind of a question. So anyways, these two students, if that's what they are, they are lifelong students anyways, they meet up and have an idea of putting together a journal. Milton Abernathy had already been in trouble with NC State for publishing some pretty condemning articles about the administration. Mm -hmm. He got kicked out for uh, causing too much of a ruckus, enrolled in UNC, and then has this idea to publish Contempo. One of the things I'd like to say about Contempo, they published a wide range of authors, authors Mm -hmm. who we recognize now. So Hughes, County Cullen, Robinson Jeffers, Hart Crane, D.H., uh, D. H. Lawrence, Edward Dahlberg, Sherwood Anderson, Louis Sinclair, Sergey Sergei Essenine, E. E. Cummings, uh, Mayakovsky, Waldo Frank, <laughs> Louis Ginsburg, Alan Ginsburg's yeah. father. So quite a quite a collection of names. But... It's
0: uh, it's astounding. It's like, <laughs> especially considering how long they they were around for. Um, and they were also interested in publishing, particularly uh, incendiary things at the time. Katempo um, is launched the same year as Hughes's visit. So so they were pretty quick to print some views that were especially radical in the South. One of the issues that will come up is the idea of of communism and whether or not Hughes was one. But before we turn to Hughes's piece in Contempo, which uh, may shed some light on that, we should establish some more context around the visit itself. You you briefly mentioned the slippery territory around Contempo's affiliation with the university, uh, which seems to be very important, mostly because there is a sharp distinction between what he publishes in Contempo and what he presents to the public in his talk at the university. And this confusion about Contempo's relationship will matter when UNC is attacked for Hughes's visit. But sticking with the visit for now, uh, what have you learned about the reaction to just his presence here, as opposed to the work?
1: On the topic of the reading and the presentation mm-hmm. in Hughes' visit to an all-white campus, the only white campus that he stops at during his tour of the segregated South. He writes that the theater at the University of Chapel Hill was packed to the doors the night I read my poems there, and special police were put on guard to prevent trouble since considerable pressure had been put upon the university to cancel my lecture. Mm -hmm. Courageously, the university refused to do so, but a leading politician of the town attempted to get police protection for the program withdrawn, stating that I should be run out of town before I had a chance to speak. Yeah. So the professor guy Johnson who invites Hughes who was at the time teaching a course on black culture on campus apologized saying that most of us white folks were too hypocritical or too crowded to put him up for the night. Yeah. So Butita and Abernathy extended an invitation for them to stay with with them as a way of protesting the segregation of students and the segregation of the campus.
0: But he didn't actually end up staying with them either, right?
1: Yeah, it sounds like Hughes, based on his own piece, it sounds like Hughes didn't actually stay with Abernathy and Butita, but stayed with uh, quote-unquote Negro hosts, and at the end of this piece, he writes that he's invited to go out to eat, and he says, I had by afternoon been housed with a leading Negro family of the town, but that evening I dined with my two intrepid white hosts at a white cafe on the main street in the company of several other white students. If they were willing to go through with dinner in a public restaurant in the tense atmosphere of that small town, I was willing, too. Mm -hmm. After dinner, when I got back to my stopping place to dress for the lecture, my Negro host asked me where I had dined. When I told him, at a downtown restaurant, the man of the house said, What a shame You had to eat in the kitchen. I said, No. I ate at a table in the dining room. His mouth flew open in astonishment. It's the first time such a thing ever happened in Chapel Hill he said. The next morning, all the newspapers in the state carried dispatches concerning the excitement attendant upon my appearance at Chapel Hill. So this is a, uh, that's a really curious point in terms of thinking about Jim Crow and segregation, even the question of eating Franklin Street is such a trafficked area. Right. Uh, Even today, it's kind of a main student spot, but even thinking about the risks of a black body sitting down at a cafe to eat dinner and this being kind of a shock to Hughes's hosts saying that no black person had done that before, even if that's not necessarily true, which we don't know it might, it could be, there's still something to be said about that fear of just the public visibility and really the kind of power of the poetry blending in with the life, blending in with the action of Hughes's body actually there, mm-hmm. uh, taking that risk and kind of...
0: Yeah. This is probably a good time to turn more directly to the two pieces we've already referenced a bit um, The first is a short poem called Christ in Alabama, in which Hughes imagines Christ as a black man in his contemporary Alabama. And the other is an essay, also quite short, titled Southern Gentlemen, White Prostitutes, Mill Owners, and Negroes. Um, Before we dive in, just generally, what were your first impressions when you came across these in the archives?
1: Yeah, so um, the two pieces, he brings them up in that short piece, Color at Chapel Hill, and he says that he was as surprised as were the people of Chapel Hill to find his writings on the pages of Contempo. So Mm. this is kind of a curious thing here. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's um, curious that he didn't necessarily know that they were going to be published by Contempo, let alone that they would be kind of the center of the front page. Yeah. And they've got an illustration above Christ in Alabama of a black silhouette holding his hand, his or their hands up with... A stigmata. Yeah, hose. a stigmata. Mm-hmm. An image that continues to be so resonant in terms of our current political struggles, thinking about hands up, don't shoot, and a lot of the protests, the strategic aesthetic protests carried out by black bodies with raised arms. I think the resonances there are really, really powerful. But also the fact that both of these pieces, in a sense, have a certain biting, satirical, stringent, almost bitter tone. So Mm -hmm. the poem, Christ in Alabama, definitely, but the short prose piece, Southern Gentlemen, White Prostitutes, Mill Owners, and Negroes, I mean, it's a really incendiary piece with a language that is meant to kind of provoke a visceral response. Just to read a little bit of the ending here. If these 12 million Negro Americans don't raise such a howl that the doors of Kilby Prison shake until the nine youngsters come out, And I don't mean a polite howl, either. Then let Dixie Justice, blind and syphilitic as it might be, take its course. And let Alabama's southern gentlemen amuse themselves burning nine young black boys till they're dead in the state's electric chair. Mm. And let the mill owners of Huntsville continue to pay women workers too little for them to afford the price of a train ticket to Chattanooga. Dear Lord, I never knew until now that white ladies, the same color as southern gentlemen, Traveled in freight trains, did you, world? And who ever heard of raping a prostitute?
0: <laughs> I don't mean to
1: laugh. <laughs> no, I mean yeah, that's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. It's just yeah, it's it's just so intentionally uh, incendiary, almost to the point of rendering it difficult to understand who exactly it's for.
1: Yeah, and I think that he, the way that they're worded, I. There's something that's quite tongue-in-cheek about it, Mm -hmm. and it's, I think, meant to elicit this response from any kind of reader, uh, regardless of whether they're Southern quote-unquote gentlemen, or whether they're um, liberal whites, or whether they're even forward-thinking black people in terms of, it's incendiary on all accounts. Yeah. So in terms of thinking about North Carolina's history, I was recently reading about Warren Clay Coleman, who was a black businessman in South Central North Carolina, and founded the Coleman Manufacturing Company, which was one of the first black-owned and operated textile mills in the United States as a whole, and so this was 1898. So I think uh, to kind of complicate this a little bit, Coleman's not necessarily involved in this kind of controversy with Hughes, but uh The question of mill owners and mills being owned specifically by white people, Mm -hmm. while this is historically kind of has a lot of foundations, and obviously the South is built on slavery, it is curious the way that in North Carolina there have been these pockets of black survival, and not just black survival, but thriving, owning textile mills, running industry, running a town like Durham. I think often it becomes easy when we kind of hear narratives like Langston Hughes that he comes here and all the mill owners are white. It's easy to kind of split things um, and make them kind of black and white. And right. it's really curious the way that North Carolina's history is really, really complicates that.
0: And I wonder to what extent, I mean, he knew that because he is not, he's calling on both black and white people um, to rescue the nine Scottsboro boys. You know, it's not just um, a white antagonist issue.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I think that's why the it's the little prose piece, Southern gentlemen, white prostitutes, mill owners, and Negroes. It's really attacking everyone yeah. there. And I, I that's really curious. And I think if we're to think about Hughes's politics, yeah, I mean, there's, there's something in there.
0: Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I, I got from doing a little research into this is the extent to which Hughes was thinking about an audience. Um, He's writing to Contempo, and he pulls a couple pieces from Contempo saying that it's not the right tone, it's not using the right language to get at the kind of readers he wants to get at in the South, so he runs something different. The fact that he chooses what he chooses to run into Contempo, if he chose it, it's a little bit, again, iffy. And we've sort of been skirting around this issue a little bit, but um, what do you think about the differences or lack of differences between a sort of poet's public persona and their persona on the page? And is it right to sort of bridge that divide or to even investigate it and sort of poke our fingers into into that space?
1: Yeah, such a good question. Um, Such a conflicting, profound question, one that's about Hughes, but also about other poets. In terms of Hughes specifically, in his essay, uh, The Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain, he talks about the common people as the proper muse for the black poet. But he also writes about wanting to transform what he calls the ugly face of the Southland, Mm -hmm. which would force him to reach white audiences and transform white audiences as well. So I think in terms of thinking about the common people and in terms of thinking about both low-down folks and the ugly face of the white Southland, this kind of combination of he's he's very conscious of an audience he's thinking about a variety of people brought together and in that way he is no longer a person but he is something more akin of a style or a kind of so it's difficult in a sense to kind of map directly Hughes in the flesh and the the words that Mm -hmm. Hughes gives us that are printed in the page which take on their own bodies even the kind of page on Contempo there is a to me at least, there seems to be kind of a separation between what is there and then kind of like the, the pulsating, vein-filled, artery-filled, uh, breathing, eating person. Right. You know? And it's curious, There, are, to, to me it's been a fundamental question because it's also a question that makes us, forces us to reconsider our practices of forming canons and of reading poetry more broadly. When I've been taught to read poetry, and the way that I've read poetry, poetry has been really inextricably intertwined with a, with an artist's or a poet's experiences. So mm-hmm. William Carlos Williams walking around Patterson, there's something that's very personal about that. But I think that what Hughes allows us to do with poetry is to really focus on the impersonal and to focus on the elements that come from without and within, but that don't belong to a proprietary subject's that are actually more kind of complicated, diffuse, and that kind of uh, permeate a variety of different bodies. So when we're thinking about the common people, we're also thinking about common values. We're also thinking about beliefs. We're also thinking about habits. We're thinking about habits of speaking, habits of being, habits of talking. Habits of breathing, habits of walking down the street. And then these habits are habits that are shared. And so I think in a lot of ways, by making a common poetry, a poetry that is shared, the artist is no longer an individual, that becomes a collectivity.
0: Yeah, and in that way, the piece is really perfect for the pages of Contempo. But also, I have to say that while reading about this history and, and reading what he published, I couldn't stop thinking about the kind of moral obligation of the editors of Contempo, uh, two white and by all accounts privileged young men, um, and I mean especially a moral obligation to the body of Hughes. Um, I would never suggest that the pieces shouldn't be published, but I think the timing could have been considered a little more carefully. Um, and according to the accounts I read, his actual talk at UNC was relatively innocuous. It contained nothing like the language or tone or sentiment in the essay. Um, and UNC's newspaper, the Still extant Daily Tarheel. Went to bat for him uh, and for UNC when all the races began to creep out of the woodwork, um, and President Frank Graham w- was also continuously supportive of their decision to invite Hughes, and he had to remind everyone uh, that was attacking uh, him and UNC and Contempo um, that they had a black that UNC had a black speaker visit every year. So the real issue, I think, and the reason that Hughes and UNC were continually attacked is not necessarily uh, his talk, but what he publishes in Contempo.
1: So I, I even before Hughes gets there, the question, um, not only because of his publication on Contempo, which is you know uh, targeting these quote-unquote Southern gentlemen, the mill owners, uh, but really the emphasis on religion. So the poem, we haven't really spoken about it that much. Christ in Alabama, a poem that is invoking an image of a black Christ, a black Christ being crucified mm-hmm. and calling Christ a bastard. It was interesting that the response was one that was tinted with so much emotional attachment towards the, towards religion as a central pillar of stability for Southern society. And this attack upon Christ, what is seen as an attack upon Christ, this black Christ being something that many mill owners see as kind of fundamentally... Um, trying to reform and re or completely transform, completely mutate, completely uh, recast the whole social structure, the whole social foundation. One that, I mean, necessarily from this perspective of the speaker now is one that should be kind of rethought and transformed, but really the way that it hinges around. Uh, religion as this kind of solidifying glue that holds society together, I think is really really interesting, Mm -hmm. and uh, really interesting in terms of questions of free speech today and in questions of how do we talk about religion, how do we kind of talk about religion in the South specifically uh, given its entangled complicated, messy history
0: I couldn't help but read the um, quote, unquote protection of Southern religious ideals and tradition, uh, or even the levying of communism as a sort of red herring for their blatant racism. Uh, Like you said, the fact that some were already protesting his arrival with violence, uh, specifically with what reads like the threat of lynching, uh, before hearing what he has to say or reading what was in Contempo, pretty much proves that. So there's so much happening around this moment, um, and we can't... Oh, this gets to uh, what I wanted to touch on a minute ago. and I think you're right insofar as that we're supposed to take the essay as as tongue-in-cheek, but he's painting with a broad and, quite frankly, dangerous brush. Not that it shouldn't have been published. Um, I'll remind listeners that Hughes was trying to incite an uproar to save the lives of the nine Scottsboro boys. But, But so what do you think of the editorial morality on the part of Contempo in a case like this, where violence could have easily been done to Hughes?
1: It's a curious position to be in, because do you not publish the poem because of this? In a sense, doing that is a way of perpetuating it. If you publish the poem and you expose the body to harm, is that something... Whose whose body is at stake there, and is it okay for them to kind of uh, Abernathy and Butita are on the line, but not quite in the same, uh, not quite to the same degree that Hughes is, and if we're thinking about the 1930s too, such a ripe time for public lynchings, mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I yeah, it's a it's a curious question in terms of Contempo more broadly. I think at the beginning of the magazine they were interested in publishing anything. They kind of got this label of communist or leftist, a few issues into their publication. But looking through the archives, you find a wide range of viewpoints next to each other.
0: Yeah, and um, in the pages of Contempo and also the bookshop that they begin, the Intimate Bookshop, it is a, um, a light, I would say, in the darkness of, of that contemporary South in terms of their adamant... An intense fight against uh, Jim Crow laws. They seem to be sort of the only kind of liberal outlet. Um, and I've mentioned uh, President Graham's support for Hughes. Um, he also said he would take full responsibility and resign before he let Guy Johnson or Paul Green be fired. Um, but Hughes' visit brought down a storm on UNC that lasted about five or more years, and it got to the point where parents weren't letting their students enroll until something was done about its uh, cultural politics, because it was being painted by these Southern mill workers as a kind of, uh, white Southern mill workers, I should specify now, as a kind of den of iniquity in the South. So what I want to ask is what you think of the university's role in its relationship with Contempo, um, or more broadly, sort of the issue of the free exchange of ideas that, that seems to be at stake here.
1: Totally, totally. So I think um, Contempo already had a reputation even before it began, Mm -hmm. because Abernathy already had a reputation getting kicked out of NC State. And And so Contempo is known already to kind of excite or incite a type of rebelliousness, whether it was communist or not. There was a certain kind of uh, dissent that was being voiced through Contempo that Contempo was an organ for. And that, to an outsider, Contempo being published so close lead to the UNC campus both physically but also intellectually because students are reading the magazine, students are frequenting the bookshop, there's this porous reciprocal exchange between the the publication and the intellectual life of the university Mm -hmm. and it becomes easy I think for people, especially a lot of the people that we're looking at who are writing in from Charlotte, North Carolina, and then kind of thinking about Chapel Hill, it becomes easy I think to conflate uh, contempo with the university despite the fact that the university was actually quite, uh, yeah, it was much more conservative, I think, than the way Contempo might paint it out to be. So I think that's also a question of kind of public perception Mm -hmm. of an institution based on interests of the student body. But even the question of the student body, like I said, is kind of a murky one, because is it the student body? Who is really interested in it? Um, And I think... Universities more broadly have generally served as a place of ideas, and often ideas lead to revolutionary and thinking lead to insurrection, lead to kind of profound social transformation. And I think for mill owners in the early half of the twentieth century, looking for a type of solid ground, looking for a type of uh, continuity and stability in their lifestyle, just the possibility that the university might. Cultivate or culture this type of descent is something that becomes really frightening, and it's a question of about education more broadly. It's mm-hmm. a question of what does the university do, what's at stake in the university's mission, um, what is it to produce knowledge? Is the knowledge that's being produced uh, beneficial to society? Is it not? Yeah, and I think that the question of religion is really what is kind of holds this together because. If The way that I understood the reaction, a lot of it was because of the attack on, not attack necessarily, but because of the use of uh, Christianity. Right. And I think that in terms of is the university a Christian institution, and if it's not, kind of what's the position of religion, what's the position of these kind of embedded social norms, conducts, beliefs, values, and if the production of knowledge uh, rubs up against that, if there's a rupture, then kind of what happens... To the
0: university. Yeah and I think that um, people in power, specifically Frank Graham, uh, the president at the time, was considering all of these things. Um, he had to constantly remind these mill owners who were writing in, essentially trying to shut down the university at, at one point. Um, Graham had to repeatedly remind these southern mill owners that they had a representative black person who came and spoke every single year um, well, so so, why do you think it was Hughes that created such a reaction? Was it just bad timing? or was, was he the straw that broke the camel's back? So why Hughes?
1: Yeah, I think he was definitely the straw that broke the camel's back to a degree just because of what he represented and what he stood for. I think there's a certain kind of rejection of Hughes's experimental aesthetic that was really kind of pushing the limits of form and expression in the early half of the 20th century and the way that this represents a type of attack or cleavage into so-called classical poetry. So Mm -hmm. if I'm remembering, there's somebody who wrote about why are we not studying the classics or the Bard of Avon, right? Why are we looking at modern poetry? I think the fact that Hughes is writing modern poetry and the fact that Hughes is transforming the figure of Christ into a black bastard of the South and the fact that Hughes is affiliating himself with a publication that has been labeled as communist and the fact that Hughes is a black person with a lot of mobility who's traveling the country on his own during Jim Crow uh, segregation who's really putting himself on the line and living a, an ideal of freedom, of black freedom, seeing himself as the people's poet. The, when he writes that I am America, he's kind of positioning himself as a poet of the people, and so the poet of the people being no longer white, but being kind of a black experimentalist, I think a lot of fears, a lot of um, a lot of threats become embodied in Hughes, and so Hughes kind of, it's not really about Hughes, but it's all of this larger, broader constellation that can then really easily be kind of, uh, yeah, pinpointed on hues. It makes me think about something like Jaws, right, Mm -hmm. where the shark becomes this, uh, it's not really the shark itself, but it's everything that the shark stands for. (laughs) Speaking of communism, uh, Jaws is known to be Fidel Castro's favorite movie, so (laughs) I don't know what that means.
0: All right, well, that's probably the best possible ending for part one. Um, Please join us for part two. Uh, where we'll look more closely at the issue of communism and consider uh, more deeply the content of the poem itself. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you, Amelia.
1: No, thank you. I would certainly also like to talk a little bit more about it. I think in terms of Contempo, we're really only scratching the surface yeah. here. In terms I, of
0: these two pieces, we're barely yeah, we're yeah, scratching no, we the surface. We haven't even really talked about the poem
1: that much uh, either in terms of like reading it and really unpacking it.
0: All right, I think I have a, we have a ton to work with. We've been re- going for 55 minutes.
1: I feel like we're only getting started. <laughs> <laughs> Should we start again? So here we are. So we're going to talk about Langston Hughes and his visit in
0: Chapel Hill. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it for this episode of CQ Speaks. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at CarolinaQuarterly.com and follow us at facebook.com slash Quarterly and on Twitter at nc underscore quarterly. Remember to rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening and to be on the lookout for upcoming issues. Until next time, read well, write well, and thanks for listening.